Particularly for me, I think I've noticed I've been much more anxious and stressed this year. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Teach Me in 20. I'm Karis Ryan and joining me today, she has been a therapist for the last 15 years, working in child protection and the coroner's courts, to now in schools and private practice. To add to that, she's also a mum, a writer, and she started her own podcast, The Curious Life, and shares with us today what she's learned being in the industry, what she's had to overcome herself, and some little tips and tricks of how we can improve our own mental health. If you like the episode, make sure you subscribe, show it some love, or leave a review wherever you're listening. Let's get to our chat with Yana Firestone. Yana Firestone, welcome on. Thanks, Karis. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I, I mean, the CV is extensive. How do you fit it all in? <laughs> I ask myself the same question sometimes. When you list it all like that, it sounds like a lot. But um, I guess it's just about finding balance, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm sure you've had to do that a little bit more this year. D- mm. Tell me, do therapists get stressed? And if so, how do you deal with it? Very good question. Some people think that just because you're helping other people with stress that you're not then prone to all the same mental health issues as everyone else. But I can firmly get rid of that little fantasy. We are absolutely just like everybody else. We get just as stressed and just as anxious and just as sad and just as everything as everybody else. So you know, this year has been full of all of those things with anxiety and stress and Particularly for me, I think I've noticed I've been much more anxious and stressed this year more than ever. And I guess the way that I've been dealing with it is through exercise. That's something that I find really works for me. Um, And it's one of those things that, you know, you just, when you're feeling stressed and anxious and tired, it's the last thing you want to do, but it's the absolute best thing for you. So even just getting out, going for a walk, which in 2020 has been fairly limited in terms of where we can go here in Melbourne. Yeah. But um, yeah, I find exercise, spending time with people I love, trying to remember the things that make me feel really good and, and do as many of those things as I can. Yeah. What do you like doing for exercise, Yana? Are you a runner or a walker? Well, running was my new 2020 thing. I started doing the couch to 5Ks uh, Ooh, this nice. year. Congrats. Which was yeah, thank you. Um, you know, as someone who was never a runner, that felt like a massive achievement going from those like 60 second blocks of running to 20 minutes to 30 minute stretches of running. Um, so I was pretty proud of that. Uh, we also do the um, 28 by Sam Wood program. So he's somebody that I've interviewed a couple of times on the Curious Life podcast. And so we, you know, got a little trial of that and got hooked. So we do that at home too. Oh, excellent. So you've been in the industry a long time, Yana, and I was reading a bit about your background. You, unfortunately, when you were 21, uh, your mum passed away. So that's obviously a really grieving stage for you. Has that helped you in your line of work and being able to empathise with patients? Yeah, I would definitely say that has made me understand the experience of my clients much better. So particularly when I was working at the coroner's court, you know, that's all about sudden and unexpected death. And I was 
families, friends, witnesses, and anyone affected by sudden or unexpected death in Victoria. And, you know, you can read all the books and get all the degrees. And, you know, I had all those bits of paper, but until you've really experienced something like that, you can't really know what it means to be in their shoes. And I think that did make me connect better with my clients. And it wasn't something that I threw around or used as a means to connect, but I just really understood their experience viscerally, you know, and I think it gives you, I mean, it's awful to say, but you do grow through these really tough experiences. And I think it gave me a maturity and an understanding of the world and the way that we are as humans uh, that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. Seeing what you're, you are as well in the courts and I'm sure with child protection, does that take a toll on you as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with a lot of those kinds of jobs where you're dealing with trauma on a daily basis, you often don't realise how much of a toll it's taking until you leave the industry. So I worked in grief and trauma for the first half of my career. You know, as you said, I worked in child protection. I worked at the coroner's court. I worked with victims of crime. Um, I did a placement working at the Victorian Foundation for Survivors of Torture, uh, working with refugees. So, I mean, all I was seeing was really heavy stuff every day. And while it's wonderful work because you can see the impact and, and the difference that you're making in somebody's life pretty immediately, it does take that toll. And I think once I left, it was once I left the coroner's court, you know, I remember thinking all the time about death and loss and thinking at any minute everyone or anyone I loved was just going to drop dead or have a terrible accident or something awful was going to happen. And it took a long time to readjust my perspective and remember that what I was dealing with was a very skewed population. It was just a small percentage of the general population. It's not the the norm. So um, it's sort of like affects you in funny ways. Another uh, memory I have is once I left child protection, I remember visiting my dad and the neighbour came out and was giving his little son a cuddle and a kiss. And I remember going into my dad's house saying, God, did you see that dad? I don't know about that. And he just laughed at me and said, oh my God, Yana, like it's time for you to do something different because that was just a dad giving his son a loving cuddle. There was nothing bad or sinister about that. So yeah, it does warp your perspective a little bit. So I think those kinds of jobs have a particular lifespan, I think. Right. I was uh, speaking to a journalist not long ago as well, and he said a similar thing. I mean, very different to what you've been dealing with, but that same relentlessness. And I've even got a friend who works in the hospitals. And it's interesting, those Mm -hmm. jobs that it's not a long man's game. It's, It's really like you're in and you're out. Those times when you mentioned, you know, you had those thoughts, I mean, I'm sure everyone can relate to that as well. How did, was it just a matter of, you know, switching it off or is there things that you did that you can pass on to people of helping them change that line of thought? Um, Well, in terms of, uh, I guess, the hypervigilance, 
that I was experiencing in, uh, well, after working in the coroner's court where I was constantly aware of my body and what was happening and thinking something terrible was going to happen all the time. Um, I did have to do a bit of work on that. And it's a lot of that self-talk stuff. So just reminding yourself about the bigger picture, giving yourself that perspective again, and just saying, hang on a minute, all I'm seeing is this kind of thing. The rest of my friends and my family are all safe and well and there's nothing to worry about. And then filling your days off and your time off with lots of positive interactions. Like something that was really nourishing for me was spending time with my friends' kids. I had some family friends and cousins that had just had little babies and so I was spending a lot of time with them and getting lots of really positive and joyful interaction with you know, well-loved, healthy kids, particularly my child protection time that gave me that balance and perspective again. So it's just finding those little things that work, I think, for you Mm -hmm. and definitely gaining perspective. I remember volunteering at a homeless shelter and it just, you really realise like, okay, my problems aren't that big. Like it just brings you back down again. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything that drew you in particular, Yana, to the being a therapist? Well, um, I say it was destiny. I grew up with a father who's a psychiatrist and a mother who's a psychologist. So I guess, you know, something (laughs) got in there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I didn't really have a chance, did I? (laughs) And then what's kept you going for so long? 15 years is a long time. What's kept you going? Yeah. And actually I came to it quite late. I, you know, I started my undergrad in psych about five years after finishing school. So um, it was something I was always interested in. I've always really loved people and their stories. And um, I guess that's what keeps me going now. I love working with people. I love helping people as like naff as that sounds, but you know, I really do enjoy working with people and helping to work through whatever's going on for them. Is that how the podcast started? Because you like meeting people as well? Yeah, pretty much. I was on maternity leave with my second son. And, you know, the first time around, you know, the full year at home, you're just like in heaven and baby land and so focused on being at home with the baby. Second time around, I think I got about 10 weeks in and I was like, okay, well, I'm bored now. Like, what are we going to do? He just sleeps and feeds and smiles and that's about it. So um, I was trying to find a way to be creative again and I was wanting to pick up some writing again. I'd been freelancing prior to having kids and um, it just sort of evolved. I was thinking about all the really interesting people that I'd love to talk to and unpack their stories and it just sort of seemed like a podcast was the best platform to do that rather than trying to retell it in writing. Mm. It's definitely, Mm. I've really loved it and it's just growing and growing, especially this year. You're seeing more people get on board because it is such a growing platform, especially in Australia. I think it's still got a long Mm. way to go, but it's getting there. Speaking of 2020, it's been a very different year and especially for yourself as a therapist, for sure. I mean, are you seeing different things amongst your patients? Are they coming to you with different things um, because of such a different year it's been? Well, interestingly, it sort of seems to have, well, the issues seem to be presenting more readily now that things have gone back to semi-normal life. 
Um, I'm, I'm, you mentioned earlier that I work in schools at the moment. So I'm working with a lot of adolescents and throughout the lockdown period, when we were doing remote learning, there were a handful of students that I was working consistently with, but they were ones that already had pre-existing issues like anxiety or other mental health issues. But coming back to on-campus learning and having the students have to transition back into you know, communicating with each other, being around other people all the time, the energy that it takes to sit in a classroom and be surrounded by everyone else's energy and focus in a different way. It just sort of felt like the wheels came off as the term progressed. And you would have thought, I would have imagined actually it would have gone the other way, that they would have all been relieved to be back to real life and being with each other again. But all the issues like anxiety, social issues, behavioural issues, you know, motivation, concentration, all of the things that I thought would have been the big issues in lockdown were what was huge once we were back in reality. With kids as well, I guess we're seeing social media as a playing a part in body image. Is that to blame for a lot of the problems we're seeing in our adolescents and our kids? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that is where they get all their information from you know they've got their phones just like we do as adults it's everything that is informing them about their bodies how they're supposed to behave what they're supposed to look like how they're supposed to interact with each other so i'm often telling my clients to just try and change the algorithm like start following body positive people and people that make you feel good about yourself so that you're not just looking at all of those unattainable bodies and images that have been edited within an inch of their lives and actually looking at real people sharing real parts of their lives. What about Yana when, and um, I feel like listeners could relate to this, when a friend or family member comes to them and they're saying, look, I am struggling. How can we as like an ally best help them? Is it directing them to someone like you to talk to? I mean, that's difficult if they don't want to do that initially, but how can we really support them in those early stages? That's a great question, actually. I think a lot of people are really scared to ask the question when they can see their friend or loved one struggling because often we're afraid to hear the answer and we're afraid that if we ask, you know, hey, are you actually okay? that person's going to say, no, I'm really not, and then unload some really scary things onto you. And if you're not prepared to deal with that, that's a really frightening proposition. So I guess the number one message that I would be sharing today is that as a listener and as a friend, it's not your role to fix the problem. If you have a friend or anybody that you're worrying about, all you have to do is ask them if they're okay And if they decide to disclose things and share what's going on for them, all you have to do is listen. And you don't have to have the answers. You just listen, take it all in. And then if if you feel like they'd like to keep talking and you're not comfortable, direct them to other people. So like, as you said, someone like me, there's plenty of free services online. There's things like web chat. So you can go to all kinds of things like Kids Helpline, Lifeline, Headspace, and you can jump online and they don't even have to talk because sometimes picking up the phone is a really scary prospect too. So you can actually just chat anonymously. And so that's one of the, I guess, you know, modern ways of connecting with experienced professionals. And of course, there's always the GP and, you know, 
the usual way to get to therapy, but getting people to talk is the most important thing and the first step in getting them help. I didn't even know they had uh, like the apps you were talking about where you mm. can be anonymous. That's perfect. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the scariest thing for so many people is actually having to talk about what's going on. And if you can just jump online and just say, oh my God, I'm not coping. This is happening. This is happening. I'm feeling like this. You can get all the support and the advice. And, you know, then when you're ready, you can take the next step and get further help. How do you talk to families about problems, you know, parents that would have no idea of maybe what the modern day student is going through? Yeah, it's, um, it's a tricky one. You know, some parents are better than others and more open to, you know, the modern ways and thinking. And, but there are always different expectations. There are cultural differences. There are all kinds of things that play into the conversation that you might be having with somebody. So you always have to tread pretty carefully but I guess in my role when I'm supporting their child, I'm acting in the best interest of that child. So it's just about finding a way to help that parent understand whatever it is that's going on and put it into context so that it's not so scary for them. Because mm. a lot of people as well come from families that would never have accessed psychological support in any other setting. And so for their child to be accessing that support through me, that might be the first time anyone in their family has done that. And that can be, again, a scary or daunting kind of uh, experience. So I guess I just try and connect with them in the same way that I would connect with my clients and try and get them to see what's going on from, with a positive perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it must be hard because to a lot of parents, they'd go, oh, we'll just get rid of Facebook and Instagram. Like just, mm. you know, don't just get rid of the phone and the problem goes away. But it's sort of yeah. burying our head in the sand a little bit. Mm. Yeah. And that's a tricky one because for so many kids, their phone and the apps is how they actually connect with each other. So if you take that away, they actually don't have any contact at all with their friends. So it's a really fine line. That's one that a lot of parents often talk to me about. And, and particularly with young boys, they play these video games where they're all online with each other and that's how they talk. And it's, it's like they're hanging out in their lounge room together. Um, but at the same time, that can be the most dangerous and the scariest place for a lot of kids. So it's really, it's a fine balance. I don't have kids, Yana. I know you are a mother. What about, like I am... It has crossed my mind, I'm sure friends I talked to as well, if we do have kids in the future, what they might have to deal with. Yeah. Is it a matter of, you know, they'll have to deal with different issues or is it relatively over your experience, the same issues you're seeing through each generation um, and the same coping strategies? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think about this a lot myself, obviously, you know, having two young boys uh, myself who are already very much all over the phones and know how to unlock my phone and get into YouTube and all kinds of things at four and two, which just blows my mind. Um, not that I let them, but of course they still know how. Yeah, they find um, a way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, I think it's generally the same kinds of issues, but they're just exacerbated. So for me, when I was at school, there were no phones, there was no internet. That sort of all happened after I finished school. So for me and my, in my time, if somebody was being bullied, you know, that would end at 3.30 and they could go home and be safe 
with their parents and their family at home. Whereas now it's 24 seven because they have got access to phones and apps and everything. So it's like we were talking about before. It's a wonderful thing, but it can also be the most damaging thing being connected 24 seven. So I think we're going to see a lot more of the same kinds of issues, but we're just going to have to broaden our thinking in terms of how to manage it. I know there's no quick fix as well, but child protection, obviously we want to support our youth and some of the traumas these kids have to go through. I was speaking to a foster parent a few weeks ago and it's like, I've obviously had a very sheltered upbringing, so I couldn't even fathom some of the stuff, but how can we help these kids? And is it a matter of, you know, it's a cyclical process of their parents have mental health issues. So, you know, they're, you know, affecting their own kids and then the cycle continues or just how can we better support these kids in child protection and to see less kids in child protection? Mm. Like you mentioned, a lot of what is happening in that area is, you know, multi-generational. So we do see kids that have had parents and grandparents who might've had um, any number of issues that have ended up with kids in child protection. But you know, I was talking to somebody the other day on one of my podcast episodes who um, she had a parent who'd been really quite unwell mentally when she was growing up. And she said that she just wishes she had somebody to tell her that none of it was her fault. And so I guess what would really be helpful for a lot of those kids is to know that, yeah, even if there is that multi-generational, multi-layered um, system that's happening within their family, that none of it is their fault, that everything is totally survivable. You can totally overcome what has happened in your family and be the person that changes, that breaks the cycle, changes the dynamic. So I guess these kids just need love and nurturing and I guess reassurance that, you know, they are beautiful and wonderful and loved and it doesn't matter where that love's coming from, if it's not their parents, if it's their foster parents or a beautiful teacher, as long as there's an adult in their life who's telling them how wonderful they are, I mean, that just goes so far in terms of their development. So. I guess they just need more love. I think I love that message. Yeah. Let's um let's do that. Bring it back to more current days. Obviously we've had quarantine recently, lockdowns and relationships have taken a toll. I was mm. I saw a post you did about relationships and really enforcing to people to have that line of communication open, which seems super simple, like, hello, yeah. talk to your partner. But is that like half your job of just reiterating the little things to people, keeping it simple? Yeah, 100%. You know, we're all so good at telling other people what they should be doing, but we're terrible at applying it to ourselves. So, you know, that's where those reminders come in when people are talking with me just about those simple things. Because you're right, so many relationships haven't made it through lockdown. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. And a lot of the time, it is as simple as finding different ways of communicating with each other. And finding the little things that, I mean, when I, mean, I know the post you're talking about and um, when you think about it, we're not sort of suggesting that people need to sit down and have like big war and peace discussions every night, 
but it's just sort of checking in with each other and just seeing where you're each at and figuring out if you're both still on the same path. And if you're not, it's actually okay to outgrow relationships, you know? And I think that's a scary prospect for a lot of people, particularly as you're approaching the age of thinking about maybe marriage and kids. And, you know, sometimes people stay in relationships because they just feel like they should. And I'm not sure that's always the best, best idea. No, Mm. definitely not. As a therapist within the wellbeing and mental health industry, is there something you've learned about yourself over the years that you sort of didn't expect? That's a really good question. I think there's a lot that I've learned about myself. You know, I, I'm certainly an overthinker, so I try to do less of that. Um, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just, you know, everything's got to be thought out to the nth degree. But I... I think, you know, I would like to find ways of managing my anxiety a little bit better. Like sometimes when I've got a lot going on and I just know that my mind has to be in several different places at once and that can then take a toll on my family and I can sort of take it out on them. That can come out as anger sometimes. So I could be really frustrated or short with the kids or with my partner because I'm actually really anxious underneath because I know I've got to get through this and then I've got to do 25 other things before I can even get to bed. And so I, I recognize that in myself and I'm working on it, but um, it's certainly something that I haven't mastered yet, which is just being able to shelve it and be present. So I would like to be able to I'd like to say that I've really gotten there, but I'm not quite there yet in terms of that presence. It's actually humbling to hear a professional actually say, I am, you know, just like you, I'm human. Um, So it makes us, you know, our own faults not seem as bad and that it is, it's just like a constant learning journey. I wanted to ask as well, Yana, obviously mental health is on the rise in our community. Would you Mm -hmm. like anything in particular done by governments or local organizations that can really help reduce mental health in our society? Yeah, that's a tricky one. It looks like our government here in Victoria are putting a lot of money into that space in the coming year, which is really exciting. So um, our Premier has announced a whole lot of funding for mental health um, development. So I guess, unfortunately, a lot of it does come down to money. Like so many organisations that are doing amazing work don't have enough staff, don't have enough money. So people are doing really, really tough jobs and not really being paid for it the way that they should. Um, You know, in child protection, there needs to be huge money injected into that field. I mean, they're doing incredible work. And it's usually a lot of young graduates like I was who don't have much life experience, who are working crazy hours and not being paid very much. And um, it's kind of like all sectors that are caring for people, teachers, child, early childhood educators, they're just not getting paid enough. And they're people that are passionate about helping other people and the people that we're trusting with our kids or with our people that need support. So I just think more money, more education, um, and I I think better resources like the initiatives that I mentioned before, more online support services, modernising as many um, organisations as possible, I think will draw more people in for help. 
Speaking of spreading the love, your husband and you during Melbourne lockdown have been making baked goods and sending them out to people. How? I mean, that is beautiful. How did that come about? Have you always been a, a keen baker in the kitchen? Absolutely not. I am terrible in the kitchen. I'm lazy in the kitchen. I have no place in there whatsoever. So my partner is um he i mean i found myself a unicorn really he does all the cooking for our Perfect. house but um he's yeah i know not complaining but he um has worked in catering for the last 22 years events catering and obviously that industry fell over during covid um so we just decided to start our own thing so he's the the food guy i'm the business guy and we're sort of like rolling our skills in together and it's called the sneaky treat co and we deliver gluten-free nut-free the most delicious fudgy brownies you'll ever eat delicious lemon cake and um, um yeah at the moment it's <laughs> Well, at the moment, it's just available in Melbourne, but you can check us out at thesneakytreatco.com. We're on Instagram as well and send some boxes of goodness to the people you love. I'm going to put the link uh, to both the treats, the sneaky treats and Curious Life as well in the episode so people can find out more. Yana Firestone, thank you so much for joining me today and for the chat. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Yana. If you did, make sure you subscribe so you can keep learning from a new guest each week. And while you're there, why not leave a review if you're enjoying the Teach Me in 20 podcast? We'll see you next week. We won't see you next week. Actually, this is our last episode of the season. We'll see you next year.